This is Nate Hansen. And Tim Ritter. We are Almost Heretical. You can find us online at almostheretical.com. Welcome back to Almost Heretical. This is part five in our series on gender and Christianity, Paul, the epistles, the New Testament, all of it, kind of what is all of this saying about gender, and a lot of this is deconstructing the idea of gender roles, hierarchical order in male-female relationships, all that stuff. This week, I called it a double whopper last time. We're getting into 1 Timothy 2. 1 Timothy 2. I feel like we need that that dun-dun-dun music. Oh, yeah. You should do it. 1 Timothy 2. Monique laughed at me last week when when she listened to the podcast and said, Tim, I think you meant to say double whammy instead of double whopper. Uh, (laughs) You're just hungry probably. Which might be (laughs) true. It might be true. But I've realized it it actually is a really good metaphor uh, for for 1 Timothy 2 because I feel like this passage, as much as any other passage in the New Testament, basically represents and has functioned as an incredibly unhealthy source of information and theology for the church that uh, is slowly killing us, but we all think uh, we need more of it, or at least a lot of us tell us we need more of it. And It sounds like you're talking about a famous cheeseburger. <laughs> yes. And additionally, stretching the analogy even further, uh, I basically feel like interpretations of First Timothy 2 are like the hermeneutical theological equivalent of fast food, uh, where basically no one takes the time to actually think about what the heck they're doing <laughs> or what they're eating. We just all accept that this is what food tastes like. Did you see the advertisements at the World Cup on the side of the the pitch? It's not a field, it's a pitch. Anyways, did you see the advertisements on the side for like Mick Delivery? Oh, yep. That's like the epitome of not thinking about what you're doing. It, like if going through the drive-thru at McDonald's is not bad enough, it's like just picking up the phone and like, I, I just ordered it. It's just coming. I don't know. It's going to be here in five yeah. minutes. I don't know. I just did it. I'm certain though that millions of people ordered McDonald's during the World Cup. Okay. Double Whopper. Wait, the Whopper's not, that's not McDonald's, is it? That's Wendy's. That's Burger King, BK Lounge. Come on, dude. Oh, yeah, BK Lounge. Sorry. What does is, what is Wendy's have? Uh, the best fast food out there. The square patties? It's square, square, square burgers. Yep. <laughs> uh, and a little girl as their icon. Yeah. The re- Okay, so here's the deal. The reason I originally called this a double whopper is uh, from our perspective, there's just so much in this in terms of interpretation. So... In a second, I want you to read, uh, I'll just have you read all of 1 Timothy 2. Basically, it's the it's the last few verses of uh, this section that relate to this debate, a uh, complementarian, egalitarian debate over gender, gender roles. And this passage in uh, 1 Timothy has been the uh, passage used the most to perpetuate uh, the most pieces of this complementarian idea that men are supposed to be uh, in positions of power and women are supposed to be subservient. Uh, especially in roles in the church. And so there's a lot to unpack basically how this text has been interpreted and used in problematic and toxic and unfair ways. And then there's just so much, even though it's such a small passage, there's so much to consider to actually begin to interpret this passage well uh, that there's just a ton to get into. So I've got a massive list of notes 
And I think the best thing we should do is kind of charge through it. And Nate, you just interrupt me anytime you want, anytime you've got a question or pushback or even like, I love, kinda, I love doing that. Yeah. And you're good at it. So every time sort of, I've asked you like, Hey, what's your background or, or like kind of, what do you sense from this passage? Um, rather than do that with the passage as a whole, I think we'll do it with each kind of piece as we go along. Mm, okay. Cause what we'll see is like literally every few words of this passage has been extrapolated to create some sort of ideology around submission of women. Okay. I like it. Let's do it. That was very Seinfeld S. Okay. I immediately wanted the Seinfeld theme song. Can we just have it? <laughs> okay. First Timothy two, Nate. First Timothy two instructions on worship. That's the heading in the NIV. Oh, wait, Nate, let me, let me share too. Uh, I think there's a good chance this conversation is going to be a two parter since there's oh, so much, okay. uh, but let's just tackle it as one conversation and see how long it goes and maybe split it in half, maybe keep it in one, but we'll figure that part out later. Okay, First Timothy 2, instructions on worship. I'm going to read the whole thing and it's only, what, 15 verses. Okay, but don't read the part that says instructions on worship because that's... Okay, I just to took be. it off. I just took it we'll out. We'll talk about that soon. Um, <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. Not instructions on worship. I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. This has now been witnessed to at the proper time. And for this purpose, I was appointed a herald and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying, and a true and faithful teacher of the Gentiles. Therefore, I want the men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. I also want the women to dress modestly, without decency, sorry, with, no. (laughs) Okay, with decency and propriety, adorning themselves, not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds, appropriate for women who profess to worship God. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. Do you need to get any initial reactions off your chest? Well, it feels like there's so much here. Um, I think that uh, the main thing that comes to my head when I think about this is obviously the verse 12. I do not permit a woman to teach or assume authority over man. She must be quiet. (laughs) There once was a uh, prominent pastor in the northwest region of the country of the United States. Sorry. We have lots of listeners around the world. And so I don't want to just talk about the U S here. But anyways, there was this pastor in the Northwest region of the United States. And he would teach this specific verse like this. He would say, uh, there's two ways to interpret verse 12. You can either interpret it as I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man, or you can interpret it as I do permit a woman to teach and to assume authority over a man. So he's basically saying there's only one way to interpret this. And if you're not interpreting it that way, you're literally changing what the Bible says. So we have to interpret it as women can't teach or have authority over men. And so, yeah, if you know who that was, then you, you're probably familiar with um, 
with that teaching. And But even if you don't, you've probably seen that like in the church that there's just no other way to get around this. So I'm really curious to to talk about this today and see what else is going on here. And then there's lots of others with the hairstyles and the jewelry and uh, you know that kind of stuff that we should probably talk about. But Okay, gotcha. Yeah, I mean, uh, I think I was going to say something like this at the end, but uh, I should probably just say it now. Like, I'm pretty critical, uh, and I believe we all need to be more critical of men who have religious authority in the church and who stand up and espouse complementarian ideology. Uh, and so people like the person you just mentioned, I think warrant uh, a whole bunch of critique and pushback. Uh, but I also know that whole bunches of people that don't fall into that category and lots of them women uh, who literally are just trying their best to understand what the heck the Bible says also feel like that's the only choice here, Yep. right? It can be really difficult to understand how that isn't what Paul is saying. And so we've even got some pushback of like, you guys are just twisting uh, the Bible uh, to suit your agenda. You're doing exactly what you criticize uh, the other side for doing. Uh, I can totally get how it feels like that, but I just want to say that's because there are so many assumptions that we have when we come to these texts and that the English translators had when they came to these texts and and translated them for us in English that make it so that that feels like the only possible way to read this that simply aren't the case uh, if we were there in the original context or close to the original context in the Greco-Roman world of Paul and the early church, and if we were reading this in Greek rather than in a translated English by modern Western interpreters. So mm-hmm. all that to say, I totally empathize with uh, with all those out there who might be feeling uh, similar to that person you just said. And at the same time, uh, I think that interpretation is actually getting this passage, like many of the others we looked at, exactly backward. Uh, and I don't think at all it's twisting the scriptures uh, to try to show that. So... Let's jump in. We're going to take two episodes, actually, to talk about 1 Timothy 2. Like we said, it's a double whopper. And in this episode, basically what we're going to cover is two pieces. The first is the context of this letter and what the heck is going on in the church in Ephesus. Uh, Then the second piece is this idea of uh, Paul prohibiting women from having authority over a man. We're going to look at the Greek word authentane behind that. It's a whole scholarly debate. So those two pieces we'll get into on today's show. And then the next episode, we're going to talk about this whole Adam was formed first, then Eve thing, what, what Paul is doing in his references of Adam and Eve. And then lastly, we'll get into this crazy women being saved through childbearing, what the heck that means, and show how actually uh, that reveals the logic and context of this entire discussion. That'll be next episode. Hey, Brian, do you know anyone that was once a teenage fundamentalist? Oh, Troy, you know that I was because you and I have a podcast called I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. I did know that. But you know what I find myself asking these days? No, I don't, but I think you're going to tell me. What about all those things that church gave us definite answers for? What are we supposed to think about all those things now? Well, funnily enough, that's what we're doing for season five of I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. Ooh, Brian, I sense the Lord at work here. Mm, He works in mysterious ways. And we are going to unpack these things. We're going to find out what we do think about them now. 
So tune in to Season 5 of I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist, the official podcast for the Azusa Street Revival. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I'm not quite sure that's true, but it is available wherever you get your podcasts. (laughs) Can I just say too, like... In case scholarly debate doesn't like sound crazy exciting, this is this is so crazy important. I, so crazy that I used the word crazy three times right there. But this is really really important because, like we've said before, this is actually impacting people's lives. So the last thing we want to do on this show is just talk about theology for theology's sake and like grab some beers and like well, we debate and you would think this and I think that's not what we want to do on this show at all. The reason we care about this is because. This is actually impacting people's lives, potentially half the church. We're not hearing from half the church, like we've said before. And so that's why we care about this. And that's why we care enough, and we always do on the show, to dig into the text, to dig into the context, the history, all that stuff, to show that maybe we've had this all backwards and Paul's saying something completely different. So that's our heart. That's what we care about. And that's why we hope you'll stick with us and do the hard work because we can potentially see how this actually brings a lot of hope to those of us who want equality in the church and want to see that brought to people who don't even agree with that right now. Okay, I just had to get it off my chest. No, it's good. I mean, literally right before I came and jumped into the shed to record, I was talking with my neighbor out front with Monique and Cam, and uh, she basically a conversation came up about jobs and work and church and uh, whether or not I want to go work for another evangelical church. And I basically just shared, no, it's going to be a long time before I even consider something like that. Uh, It didn't end very well. And she uh, just shared, uh, and this older woman, uh, oh yeah, totally understand. Uh, I was in a Baptist church for a long time and left because I was traumatized. And the way she described it is it was one of those just submit to everything. Husband's the ruler. Women just have to submit no matter what's going on. So literally just out front in the yard 10 minutes ago, uh, happened to, to meet a neighbor. Like this isn't like a church relationship, like my next door neighbor uh, who left the church uh, because of theology that was drawn specifically from this passage in First Timothy 2 that was used to essentially support uh, domestic abuse mm. and spousal uh, abuse in her life, which is why she walked away from church. Yeah, that's crazy. I think that's such a common, common experience. Okay, so let's get into this. Cool. So the first piece is context. And I just mean by that we need to back up, slow down, and and think about what is the actual context of this text that we are reading in 1 Timothy, which is a letter from Paul to Timothy addressing a particular situation which Timothy has been sent to deal with in Ephesus. Uh, And the first piece we just need to recognize is is this is basically like reading somebody else's mail or, you know, kind of jumping in on somebody's email chain. We only have Paul's side of the correspondence. We don't know what Timothy was writing to Paul or if he was. Uh, We don't know the church in Ephesus or what exactly it was like. And we don't even know if these are the only two letters that Paul wrote to Timothy, right? We basically have a very partial selection. Uh, And so the first piece is like, there just needs to be a lot of humility and on our part and everybody else's in assuming we know exactly what Paul is saying to Timothy in this letter. Uh, but secondly, we need to be really slow to think that just because Paul says something to Timothy addressing the issues going on in Ephesus, that that means he would also say that to every church throughout the history of 
the church, right? Mm. Uh, applying these ideas as a transcendent norm. Uh, and also, uh, we've mentioned this in, in previous podcasts, one of the basic hermeneutical principles in studying the Bible is that you use what is very clear or plain or or simple to understand, if such passages exist, to help you interpret, kind of to create guardrails for the interpretation of the passages that are less clear, more ambiguous, more difficult to understand, and more contextual, right? So Paul writes other letters that are to entire churches, or the book of Romans, like we mentioned before, is basically, it reads kind of like theological waxing eloquently, right? It reads kind of like this uh, magnum opus, as some people like to call it, in large part because Paul didn't even know the church in Rome. He's basically giving this broad brush overview from the little bit of information. He has to fill in more of the details and stuff because they don't know him, yeah. And it's more general, right? He's not saying uh, as much. He, He has an idea of what's going on in Rome, but he's not saying, oh, this is the exact issue. These people are doing and saying these things. Therefore... I'm going to say this to deal with those issues. It's it's more broad, more general. Whereas hmm, this right. letter, 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy that follows, is as contextual and particular and context specific as literally any text in the rest of the Bible. Which means, just basically as a hermeneutical principle, what we think we read in 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and then uh, Titus is the other one where it's just correspondence between an individual to another individual, just from the get-go, no matter whether we like what we're reading or not, should be taken very lightly in terms of how broad-stroked we think the ideas in those letters are supposed to apply to the church in general. And then if it seems like the ideas in those letters might contradict with Paul's ideas elsewhere in more broad general letters to entire church communities, then we should take a position of naturally defaulting to the theology we see, for instance, in the book of Romans or in uh, the letters to Corinthians. Does that make sense? Yeah. It's like, I feel like that's pretty natural in any kind of relationship or with any other communication. You know, if like you and I talk all the time or you dig up a bunch of emails between us and you're like, Oh, okay. They're like best friends. I, I get this. And then we have like a, a, one text between us or something that's a little bit heated or something like that. And you're like, okay, they're not best friends anymore. They're like, no, it's like, just deal with the whole of the relationship, not just this one piece that you found and apply that to everything. Yeah, totally. So what we'll see is there are actually uh, things that Paul says in first Timothy that are exactly the opposite of things he says in other places. Uh, but also I think what we're going to try to do is make the point that what he's saying here in first Timothy two to women is actually not what it sounds like he's saying, uh, that it isn't him silencing women. But my first point is, if it was, (laughs) even if Paul here, and so people have contested, some say Paul didn't write this letter, some say Paul didn't write this portion of the letter, and this was added later. There are all sorts of arguments about whether we should even trust this part of this text. But my point is say, even if, if we think Paul wrote this and we think what it means is he's, uh, he's defending and perpetuating patriarchy, that is in direct contradiction to the entire rest of Paul's theology, which is elevating the roles of women in the church, giving them full status and authority to operate in their giftings, 
calling them apostles, deacons. And subverting power structures. Exactly. And calling everyone to give up their status and power over other people. So even if we thought that's what 1 Timothy 2 was saying, we shouldn't take that as theology for today, not because we don't think 1 Timothy is an authoritative uh, text per se, uh, but because it has to be read in light of the other texts that are more clear, uh, more broad, more general. So that's first piece. But again, that's not where I'm going to hinge the argument because I don't think that's what Paul's saying here. So, okay. So second part of context, and this is one we're just going to have to summarize. Uh, You guys can go do some of your own study. Uh, I'm going to give you a bunch of passages uh, within first Timothy and second Timothy. Basically what we want to do is ask like, what is the context of this letter to Timothy. Why is Paul writing to Timothy in the first place? What is Paul's concern? And what is Paul trying to do? Hmm. Right? Why is Timothy even in Ephesus? Why did Paul say, leave the rest of the ministry that we've been doing, stay in Ephesus because there's some really serious issues going on that's worth you staying behind? Okay. And it wasn't women are starting to talk. It, exactly. And one, in one way, it might have been. In one way, it's not that at all. Uh, so here's the thing we don't have. Paul, we don't have Timothy's letters. We don't have like a historical account of the church in Ephesus. But what we do have is a whole bunch of clues. If you read carefully and train yourself to read in this way, a whole bunch of clues in 1 Timothy and the letter of 2 Timothy, which are very similar letters because they're addressing the same problem. It's just like an email chain. Uh, and then what we'll see, there's even some in Acts 19 where it talks about Paul's ministry in the city of Ephesus. And what we can do is piece together some clues that then when we add some further context of what the city of Ephesus was like uh, at the time, based on some good scholarship, we can actually start to see how maybe there's a completely coherent logical strain in Paul's thoughts. So let me just first give you guys the verses if you want to go do your homework. And then what you and I are going to do, Nate, is kind of a a flyby summary after having reflected on these verses uh, for a long time. So in 1 Timothy, you can look up chapter 1, verses 3 through 6. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. Chapter 5, verses 10 through 15. And chapter 6, verses 2 through 5 and 20 through 21. And then in 2 Timothy, you can look at chapters 2, 14 through 23. And chapter 3, verse 6. So all of those verses I just listed are pieces where Paul is explicitly or implicitly discussing what the issue is in Ephesus while he's writing to Timothy in ways that if we if we read them all, collect them, and, and sit with them for a little bit, we can actually start to sort of piece the puzzle together of, of what's going on. Okay, so Nate, uh, you and I have actually talked about this passage a bit before. Uh, do you remember what we looked at in terms of what issue is happening in the church in Ephesus? Why Paul is writing to Timothy? Like what's being addressed here? Okay, yeah. Wasn't there like a lot of like kind of false teaching going around? Not like bad doctrine, but like they were thinking like they shouldn't get married because I don't know. But like, wasn't there like a lot of just bad stuff going on like that? Yeah, I think so. The way I would summarize it is uh, the, the concerns are false teachings and false teachers. And so this theme runs all the way through both First and Second Timothy. Uh, the reason Timothy's been sent there is to deal with these false teachings, which 
Again, we don't know what they are. We don't have a book that's like the false teachings of Ephesus, but there are multiple references. So one talks about myths and genealogies, uh, which actually possibly involves or implies that there are alternative creation stories uh, going on. Uh, And this is specifically said to be, uh, there's this term old wives tales that's used, which is basically an English idiom to translate Mm. that these were teachings that were being circulated amongst the old women who would have been kind of the matriarchal uh, figures in female society who are perpetuating these ideas. So not like don't go outside without a jacket because you'll catch cold. No, not that kind of old wives tale. Like, uh, like literally they are, (laughs) Believing, uh, basically, some some to our ears would have been strange and obscure uh, myths about how the world came to be, about potentially how men and women came to be in the positions they are in, and uh, and then it appears that that was getting blended with aspects of Christian theology. So there's actually a line where Paul uh, references that some people are teaching that the resurrection has already occurred. Mm. And so there's this issue of false teaching and, and there's actually one piece where he talks about men who are taking advantage of vulnerable women. He talks about them like worms who, who worm their way into houses, uh, to take advantage of women in a, in a, wait, did you mean, did you mean resurrection? What did I say? You said resurrection. Is that what you meant? Yeah. But Hmm? hasn't the resurrection happened? Oh, sorry. Uh, the resurrection of all believers. So not Christ's resurrection, but the idea, uh, the basic Jewish idea, I guess maybe we need to do a podcast on this in the future. Uh, the, the Christian worldview is that... Like the end of death, basically. Like everyone has been resurrected, not just Jesus. Exactly. And if you remember, uh, Paul teaches very explicitly what is in First Corinthians, what is also something Jesus teaches explicitly in the Gospels, which is... In this new age, after the resurrection of, of people happens and the new age starts and the kingdom of God uh, comes to earth, there won't be any more marriage. And what we're going to see is marriage is a really important piece of this kind of rumor mill going on in Ephesus. Uh, so there's actually very good chance that part of the reason people are talking about the the second resurrection, the resurrection of, of believers, having already occurred is actually to justify the practice of banishing or prohibiting marriage, which we see elsewhere in 1 Timothy, Paul explicitly states that part of this teaching is that marriage has been prohibited. And then he actually addresses these widows in 1 Timothy chapter 5 who have made pledges to not get married. Uh, So they were married, their husbands died, and they have essentially made vows uh, to refuse to get married married again. And it seems that there's very clearly some part of this rumor mill or this whole world of myths and ideas mixed in with Christianity that on the women's side of things has to do with marriage, sexual relationships between men and women, and specifically looks like the desire for women to get away from those relationships and to get out of the sexual relationship with men in large part by doing away with marriage. Hmm. Okay. And there are some other issues. Paul's constantly pointing out with the men There's that those issues are leading to anger. The same kind of false teachings that are uh, on the women affecting sort of their ideas about relationships with men and, and all that sort of deal. With men, it's basically keeps being categorized as leading to anger and fighting. 
amongst the men, basically like this violent uh, quarreling going on with the men. And uh, so he basically says there are these women who are, who are perpetuating these ideas, but then there are also these men who are these religious authorities who are basically trying to use their religious power to gain p- positions of authority over women to take advantage of them and to gain money. Uh, to make money off it. And Paul refers to all of this stuff in multiple places as nonsense and chatter and false teachings and errors. And and he says it's spreading like gangrene, specifically amongst the women. Okay, so that's kind of like the a, a snapshot overview of what's going on here. Gotcha. Uh, but Nate, you and I have talked about this about a bit about this before. This isn't like nitpicky Bible doctrine. Right. Like these are like very again, to ours would be strange uh, things. Uh, this is not like your view on, you know, predestination or something. Like right, that. Which, but that's like, this is where people go. This is one of the passages people go to to talk about how like, Paul really, really cares about good doctrine and that's why I care about good doc- doctrine and that's why, you know, I will separate churches over the fact that you think this and I think that, you know what I mean? Like, this is where people go. Yeah, totally. And again, that's, I think, because we missed the context. I actually, as I was reflecting on, uh, this passage this week, uh, there's a, a section in Acts 19, and I recommend you go read it if you're wanting to do a study here. Uh, the whole chapter is about what happens when the early church with Paul goes into Ephesus and essentially preaches the gospel in the city of Ephesus. And what we'll get to in a, in a second is the third piece of the context is understanding the role of Artemis and the temple of Artemis in the city of Ephesus. If you remember the passage, uh, the the silversmiths who are making these little shrines that people buy uh, of Artemis, these little idols, basically feel like the ministry of the church is impacting the economy of their little religious... It's impacting their ability to sell their little religious idols. And it actually ends up leading to an, an uproar and a riot in the city where they actually grab a couple of the Christians and it looks like they're going to kill them for a little bit. And it actually made me think, uh, Nate, I know you've never been there, but uh, some of our listeners may be familiar. There's a town in uh, southern France, I think it's close to the Pyrenees, uh, where Monique and I actually rode our bike through called Lourdes. And it's honestly one of the strangest places I've ever been in my life. Mm. And the whole, basically the whole town is built around this massive cathedral. And the whole cathedral is built around this myth of this little girl, Lourdes, who had uh, basically a divine encounter uh, that relates to the whole Catholic doctrine of the Immaculate Conception. Uh, But then there's basically this water that comes out of the spring that literally hundreds of thousands of people think uh, can heal you. And so it was basically like being at Disneyland for religious tourism. So everywhere you walked, there were stands selling uh, like thousands and thousands of plastic water bottles in the shape of this little woman. Uh, And people would buy them and then go and fill up their water bottles from the faucet, right? And literally lines where people bring disabled people and blind people uh, and have them wait in lines to touch this water. Like it, it really was one of the most uncomfortable settings I've ever been in my life, but it totally reminds me of this where the temple worship and Fiji water is just like studying the, the business structure here. Like, to, to, <laughs> yeah, honestly, it, the reason I bring it up and if you want, like, even if you just uh, Google image search, uh, this town in Lorda, you can kind of get a feel for it. Um, 
But uh, it's basically the city that the in Ephesus, that the center of the city is the temple to Artemis. And in Acts 19, even some of the, the people who are writing talk about how the whole world knows that Ephesus has a claim to being the home of Artemis. And this is like the center of Artemis worship in the known world. And there's this entire religious economy uh, based around making profit off of people who believe in this Artemis temple. Hmm. And so it seems to me that there's obviously some element that the men in that Paul's talking about who are trying to take advantage of women and make money are somehow blending this Artemis cult with pieces of Christianity to gain basically like cult religious power and financial wealth from it. Ah, right. But okay, that leads to uh, our last important point, Nate. What do you know about Artemis? Um, so he was like telling people not to get married because... Uh, so uh, something, something close to that. So Artemis, uh, he was a she. Oh, uh, Artemis was a, a goddess. Oh, right, right. It says that in Acts. Okay, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So Artemis was a goddess who, especially in Ephesus, uh, there's some interesting scholarship you can look up on on potentially that uh, that Artemis had a different uh, specific connotation in Ephesus that was a little more subtle in other places where she was worshipped. But the whole focus of Artemis worship in Ephesus specifically was that she was considered the goddess of protecting women in childbirth. And that was born of this idea that she actually helped deliver her brother Apollo when he was born. And so she had these kind of powers to uh, protect women in childbirth. And so literally the center of Artemis worship was women who were understandably terrified of trying to deliver a baby because... For women, dying in childbirth was the number one cause of death in most of world history until relatively modern medical history. Uh, Women would be terrified of facing giving birth to children. They would essentially worship Artemis and hope that she, Artemis, would protect them from dying Mm. uh, during childbirth. So can you see how that element that literally this city here is the center (laughs) of the deity for protecting women from dying in childbirth might have some connections to these false teachings around marriage and sex and that kind of deal. Yeah, totally. Because if you, if you don't have like any of the power and this, your husband basically can have sex with you when you have to like, and, and he can, then you're pregnant and you're basically pregnant whenever he wants to be. And you have a very legitimate or a higher chance now of dying because of that you would maybe go after something else, uh, another teaching that, that gave you hope and a way out of that. Yeah, totally. And we'll get back to this in a little more detail when we get into the passage on women being saved through childbirth. But it looks pretty clear, and especially you get into some of the details on the scholarship, that whatever these false teachings were was somehow related to women trying to avoid the risks of childbirth, looking in some form to this whole world of Artemis cult worship as a part of that, but specifically looking to get out of marriage uh, in in relation to that, because getting out of marriage would have been the only way to get out of sex, right? As you just said, women in ancient Greco-Roman world did not have control over whether or not they had sex with their husbands, and they didn't have control over whether or not they got pregnant. That was entirely up for the husband to decide. Which, unfortunately, some people still follow that. But anyways, continue. Some people actually think the Bible's teaching that, which is ironically, tragically backward. Uh, But basically, 
uh, it looks like the main driving force behind this set of false teachings on the women's side of things is to protect themselves rightfully understood like uh and what we'll see next time is paul's actually very empathetic and understanding to that and i think that you you can see this most clearly when uh in in chapter five of first timothy he talks about the young widows that we mentioned who don't want to get married uh because they've made this pledge uh do you remember paul tells them to get married mm, right and i don't i don't know if how well you remember this but in first corinthians paul addresses widows and he specifically says you should not get married. Mm. <laughs> he says, I think it's better to be single. Uh, don't try to get married again. Take advantage of being single. So let's just pause here for a second. In 1 Corinthians, Paul looks at widows and says, don't get married. In 1 Timothy, Paul looks at widows and says, you should get married. Why would there be that contradiction? Well, it clearly isn't like some blanket thing he believes for all people. He's talking to a specific people and based on their situation, their circumstances, he has something to, to, to tell them that's different. Yeah. And it would seem pretty clearly that the circumstance here is that there is a, there is a set of teachings that says that the best way for women to protect themselves is to do away with marriage. And so that is what Timothy is sent there to, to deal with. And Paul is dealing with it when he, he addresses Timothy and how to address the women and says, actually, there's a better way other than just bucking the whole system on marriage and believing this whole set of ideas related to Artemis. Uh, it's actually good for you to get married. Uh, and we'll talk more about how that would be next time. Okay. Yeah. Wait, where does Paul say the scripture is useful? All scripture is useful. Like, doesn't does that come into play here? Yeah, actually, I think it's a, a fascinating point. It's in 2 Timothy, again, addressing, addressing these same issues. Uh, and, and just think about this for a little while. What we talked about is there are, there are men in Ephesus who are using Christianity in the church and some other form of ideas related to uh, cult worship in Ephesus to gain power and wealth over people, right? They're, they're taking like this blended, skewed version of Christianity and some ideas about the resurrection and other things uh, for their own self-gain. And that is the context where Paul says, hey, Timothy— all the scripture, the Old Testament, uh, it's really, it actually was inspired by God or, or breathed by uh, the Spirit of God. And therefore, it's really useful for rebuking and correcting and training and teaching in the context where people are using those same scriptures to take advantage of people. Hmm. Like, I just think the irony is like we've built this elaborate set of ideas around inerrancy and what the Bible is and how you have to read it. And if you question any of it, you're like falling from the faith, right? Uh, based on that passage. But ironically, it's literally people who are using scripture in a way that ends up oppressing women, <laughs> marginalizing women that Paul tells Timothy, Hey, go use those same scriptures and rebuke that crap. Basically, use those same scriptures to say that that isn't what those scriptures are pointing to. It's really very similar to what we've said is we want to use the Bible as a tool to de-weaponize the Bible in the way that other people are using it. Mm. Wow, that's crazy. It's like the opposite of how that stuff gets used. Okay, wow, that's weird. So one of the first pieces that has been 
a big argument in scholar world for a long time, and uh, and I would say a somewhat embarrassing argument if you get into the scholarship and you read through it, is what the word uh, in Greek it's authentane, but it's the word translated like in the NIV it's translated as to assume authority, right? So it says, uh, or we're back in chapter two, yeah. Yep. Verse 12 says, I do not permit a woman to teach or assume authority over a man. She must mm. be quiet. That's NIV. Uh, ESV, for instance, says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. So that word, uh, translated as uh, to assume authority or exercise authority, is a rare word in that it's only used this one time in the entire Bible. There's a whole specific term for this because it doesn't happen very often and it makes it really difficult to know what a word means. And for a long time in traditional interpretation, as you see in both of these translations, uh, it's essentially assumed as positive. Uh, so I actually want to stop, ask you for a sec. When you've encountered this verse or heard people teach on this verse, what was it said that it means here uh, in terms of a woman having authority over a man? Uh, I think just like if she's giving him direction. So if she's standing up and teaching um, like in a church or something like that, then she has authority over him. If she's an elder of a church, then she has authority over men inside the church and potentially men on that elder board. If she is uh, handling the finances in the house, then she's having authority, exercising authority over the man and taking away his manness. Um, by doing that. So basically just, yeah, like any kind of thing where she's making decisions instead of, or she's instructing um, would be authority, I think. Right. So even in most of those examples you listed, uh, basically the, the idea is she, the woman isn't supposed to do what the man is supposed to do. Right. Like, yeah. Yeah. And so this gets attached to ideas like being a pastor or being an elder. So the idea is, as it's been interpreted, that women are being prohibited from doing what is presumed to be what a man is supposed to do, (laughs) right? Mm -hmm. Here, direct from Piper, God intended the man to bear a unique and special responsibility for leadership. That's a direct quote. John Piper from 2015. Yeah. So the big scholarly debate is about what this word actually means. We've talked about, Paul talks about authority and power and rights everywhere all throughout his epistles, and he almost always uses the word exousia, uh, which means power. He never uses this word anywhere else. So first question pops up is, if that's what Paul is saying, that men are supposed to have the authority, not women, why in the world does he use this word? Then the second question pops up when you go through other writings, uh, specifically some in the Church Fathers uh, a little bit later, where this word has some pretty dramatically negative meanings. Uh, for instance, uh, there's a famous passage where John Chrysostom, uh, one of the church fathers, talks about being forcibly made to be bishop. And he uses this word to say that they forced him into doing something they didn't want to do. Other passages, this word actually has a connotation of to tyrannize or domineer or to treat someone as a slave, essentially. And in a few places, it's actually used with the connotation of to murder. <laughs> so what basically a lot of complementarian scholars have done is, uh, and there's one famous study, you can find it if you'd like, it's by a guy named, uh, where is it? 
Okay, uh, Scott Baldwin. So there have been a bunch of studies, and uh, people like Schreiner, who we've referenced, will refer to Scott Baldwin's study on the word authentane, where he basically categorizes, I think it's 80-some uses in all of Greek texts that he could find, all the way up to the 15th century uh, of this word authentane, and then categorizes the connotation of the word. And he admits that sometimes it can mean really horrible things and be completely negative. Sometimes it could be somewhat negative. Uh, But then fascinatingly, uh, he says, oftentimes it could just mean uh, the positive sense of assuming authority uh, or exercising authority over someone. And then basically, I would say, obviously and explicitly uh, projects his assumption onto the text and says, basically, you have to dismiss those other uses where it means to tyrannize or to domineer. And uh, the, the way we should interpret this is, is it basically means a positive assessment of exercising authority. Uh, there's a whole bunch of problems with that, a <laughs> whole bunch of problems in the scholarship. Westfall points them out. A bunch of other scholars have pointed out. Uh, the biggest problem in my mind is that nowhere in Paul's thinking is exercising any kind of authority a positive attribute of a Christian. <laughs> right. So even if that's what this word meant, that it's a neutral exercise of authority— Paul thinks that intrinsically what it means to be a Christian is to stop exercising authority over people and to act as a servant, the submissive one who gives away their authority. Right, right, right. That's even if you grant that this is a, is a neutral word. I think all of the evidence actually points to what Paul is doing here is he's prohibiting women from doing the same thing he would prohibit anybody who's a Christian in the church community from doing. So why doesn't he say, and, I also, and it also goes for men too, Because it's not his point. He's addressing a specific situation that's going on with the women. So again, in verse 8, the specific thing that's happening amongst the men is they're getting angry and fighting. Okay? So that's what he addresses. And he rebukes them. And the women are... And the women, apparently, are getting caught up in some sort of idea of how they should dress that has to do with clothes and hair and jewelry. Okay? And some sort of action, behavior, that is essentially trying to domineer a man. So, okay, back up one more step. Uh, Another piece of Westfall's scholarship that I think is important, and I'll just summarize it here if you want to, don't trust me, or you want to do the research for yourself, go read her book or others. Uh, But all of the evidence suggests uh, when you read this passage in 1 Timothy 2 up front, I I scoffed at you for reading uh, the heading in the NIV, which says instructions for worship. Uh, Because I think we all know those headings aren't in the Bible, right? They're added by the people who made the Bible, the translators uh, and the Bible committees. Uh, And I think this one is just dead wrong. I think Westfall's right here. Uh, The assumption is that this is talking about what happens when the church gathers for a worship gathering. And similar to what we looked at in Ephesians 5, right? And I think the evidence points, that's just not the context that Paul is addressing here. It's, it, it's actually about the household context. And specifically here, man and woman uh, likely is implying husband and wife. Uh, because uh, amongst other bits of evidence, uh, there's simply no setting where women would have had authority over a singular man uh, other than the household where it's that woman's own husband, right? If this was talking about a woman standing up in a church gathering and exercising authority over the room as a whole, which included men, uh, it wouldn't have been singular man. Uh, It would have been plural, men. It would have said women should not teach or assume authority over uh, men. 
Uh, instead, it's singular. And again, what we'll see is that the piece in verse 15 about women being saved through childbearing clearly is in the context of a marriage relationship, right? Right. Sexual reproduction, having kids. Uh, and that that actually is a conclusion to Paul's statement here. It's not basically this one-off that we don't know what to do with and has nothing to do with the thing Paul is talking about. So, big picture, if you can just trust me on it for now, there are mul- multiple pieces of evidence to suggest that this isn't, in Paul's head, he's not picturing, as he does in Ephesians and parts of 1 Corinthians elsewhere, where he says, okay, when you guys gather, specifically use that word, in all the churches, that's usually how it translates, but in all the assemblies, <laughs> when all the times you guys in all your gatherings when you come together, here are the concerns. Rather, he's actually addressing gendered concerns right here. So the concerns of the men and and all of those, all of the concerns relate to the false teachings, right? So the the consequence, the result of the false teachings, at least that Paul's pointing out with men, is anger and fighting. And the consequence with women has something to do with them bucking the system in terms of gender expectations, marriage, potentially even relationships with men at all and asserting some sort of domineering over a man. So there are multiple interpretive options for what authentane could mean here, like in Paul's head. There are multiple studies. One even uh, makes the case that this actually is like a sexualized erotic term uh, for a woman basically trying to like be sexually dominant over her husband. Hmm. Uh, if you want to get into the research on that, you can. Uh, I don't find it all that convincing, but I think it's possible. The other option is basically uh, this is kind of like a an ancient feminist movement where what women are doing is just trying to reverse the power roles and seize the domineering, tyrannizing power that their husbands over had over them by reciprocating it back to them. And Paul is always going to say, basically, no one should have the, no one should fight for like authority and power. Exactly. Yeah. So he's just saying not to do that. Okay. Um, or a third option is sort of, uh, just sort of a, a fuzzier middle ground. That is, there is some sort of trend amongst the women involving prohibiting marriage, making vows that they basically won't have sex with men anymore, uh, sort of bucking this whole uh, sexual system uh, that, that is an, an effort for women to uh, basically, you know, similar to the, to the second option, but a little softer, an effort for women to, uh, to seize power, social power, uh, over men. And, and Paul's rebuking that. But what follows is the exact opposite of how traditional complementarians interpret it, which is if Paul doesn't permit women to have authority over man <laughs> or to domineer a man, then he implicitly is saying that men should be domineering women. That's the exact opposite of the logical takeaway from this. What he's saying is no one should be domineering another person, mm. right? Uh, women shouldn't be doing that to men. And he says everywhere else in almost every one of his, his epistles that the person in a situation of power, social status over another, is supposed to imitate Christ by laying down that power and modeling Christ's submission and servanthood. So in Ephesians 5, it's that line that you're supposed to mutually submit to one another. So... I actually found that in going through the scholarship on this word authentane and how it relates here, I felt like I was just kind of watching the Western traditional theology of power play itself out, where what you're seeing was the assumption that I've suggested uh, and and really truly believe, uh, the assumption that is like the biggest hermeneutical problem with the traditional approach to these passages on gender is that we assume Paul likes power 
and wants people to have power and, and is instituting a God-ordained hierarchy. Like, that's what we think Paul thinks about power. So what you're saying is, if we can go back, read all of Paul, read any bit of Paul, and change in our mind this perception that power is good, that Paul's coming to the table thinking power is good, and instead shift to Paul is believing that power is not good, and it's something we shouldn't pursue, and we shouldn't use, and we shouldn't leverage, and we don't want to have. We want to push away from ourselves. If you read it from that, a lot of things will just kind of click and maybe look a lot different than you thought they did. Totally. I I think that the hermeneutical move, which people like Schreiner and Piper and Grudem will state explicitly, uh, but then many of the rest of us have just been led to to kind of assert this view subconsciously or more subtly, uh, says, if Paul tells a woman to submit, so we looked at other passages in Ephesians, right, where he tells wives to submit to their husbands. And here, even if you take the positive sense of the word authentane, and he says a woman shouldn't exercise authority over a man, that the complementarian hermeneutic says it therefore follows that what Paul truly believes is that men are to exercise that same authority over women. And then we imply... It's like filling in the void or something. It is. We're, we're imposing on the text a motive for Paul and a whole idea about power and hierarchy in relationships that isn't, for one, it's not here, right? Paul never, in any of his epistles, tells anyone to exercise authority. Not one time. But I bet if you went and polled Christians, not many people would think that's true. Because we're constantly taught that when he tells one person to submit, especially when it's the slave or the woman, right, that he's implicitly affirming the mastery, the exercise of authority of the other person. I think that hermeneutical move is a perfect encapsulation of, honestly, the massive theological problem that the Western church has had for most of its history. It's just revealing our assumption about power and how quickly and consistently we insert that assumption into the text in a way that then makes it so that we can't read this line saying, I don't permit a woman to teach or assume authority over man. We can't read that. Without filling in men are supposed to have the authority and teach. And that's why a woman shouldn't. Exactly. Yeah, that's crazy. I feel like that's that's because um, for a while, like when you were talking and we were and, and we got to wrap this one, we got to go to part two um, next time because this is just it's going to be too long. But when you were talking, I was just thinking like this seems like another time of Paul, like try, us trying to wiggle out of what Paul is clearly saying. Women are not supposed to have authority or teach or whatever. And I see like the other stuff you're talking about. And I'll probably have to like honestly listen to it again because it was a lot. It was dense. But when you said that, when you said that we fill in, we feel like power is a good thing to use and to leverage. And then we read that into Paul when Paul never actually said that. That was huge. Like that's that that changes the whole way um, I, I think about Paul because, and, and honestly, it changes the whole way we read these, these passages because if he doesn't say the thing that would be so easy to say, then he probably didn't mean that thing. You know what I mean? Like it'd be so easy to lay out very clearly what he's what he's trying to say here as far as um, the, the men are supposed to be the ones teaching in the church. Women aren't supposed to be doing that. Like, that's a really easy thing to say. And he doesn't say that. Totally. He says, so it's, it's so clear that he's talking about something else. Yeah. And I mean, we looked at it in the conversation on Ephesians 5. He explicitly says both husbands and wives are supposed to submit. But why doesn't anybody see that? 
right? Like, why is it when we read that passage, that part of it, which is the opening line that introduces the entire logic of the following thoughts, why is it that gets ignored, right? We j- it's not only that we insert something into the text, right, which is Paul's endorsement of exercise of authority, but we insert it so thoroughly that it actually blinds us from what Paul actually <laughs> says. So here, Paul just doesn't tell men or husbands that they should exercise authority. Elsewhere, like in Ephesians 5, he actually explicitly says, you're not supposed to do that. Yet we somehow walk away going, yep, Paul's just reinforcing patriarchy and the New Testament therefore just has this masculine patriarchal feel, or as Tom Schreiner would put it, it's emphasizing the priority of men. Uh, John Piper, 2012, for the sake of the glory of women and for the sake of the security and joy of children, God has made Christianity to have a masculine feel. He has ordained for the church a masculine ministry. <laughs> Yikes. Uh, way to end it on a downer note, Nate. <laughs> um, there's obviously more we have to talk about here and push back on and uh, and come to a better understanding on. So that's part two. Come on back next time. And also check out the Junia Project, juniaproject.com, J-U-N-I-A project.com. They have more articles and stuff on the word authentane and the meaning there. And we just, we love all the work they're doing. So go check them out. If you have any questions or anything like that, we'd love to hear from you. You can visit our website, almostheretical.com and get in touch with us there. All right, we will see you next time. Peace. Peace.